invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians. We finished chapter 5, which spoke about a, an immoral relationship that uh, the church had been very accepting of, and Paul had confronted them about their being too accepting of sin in their midst, leaven that affects the whole batch of dough. And uh, last week we looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 6, which deal with court cases. And now Paul moves on to a new section. We're entitling this Christian Liberty and Immorality. Christian Liberty and Immorality, uh, verses 12 through 20. Please follow along in your Bibles with me as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, which says this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body." Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to gather together and to really learn from your truth. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of being able to study your word. Teach us, we pray. Help us to understand who you are, what you have done for us, how worthy you are of worship, and may our hearts just be overwhelmed with worship this morning for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, delight to be back here. The room keeps on changing. We lost some of our windows. It seems a little darker in here. I don't know. I would never do that. I would never cover up windows, but um, I think they know what they're doing. It looks really nice upstairs. If you want to know what this room is going to look like, just go upstairs. Uh, they're done with the room up there, and this one will be identical to that. Uh, it's, um, it's quite something. To, to look at the demolition process here. The first couple Sundays, I thought people were just angry at what was being taught and tearing things up afterwards. <laughs> but um, uh, exciting times for us. And as we look at this, at this section of Scripture, we're talking about freedom, the freedom we have in Christ. And as I think about that freedom... Um, I look at, I think about the gospel, which we've talked about much, 
that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins. That truth alone should fill each one of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation with a sense of just wonder and awe that God, the king of all the universe, sent his son, who is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, down here, who lived a perfect life, who never deserved to die, yet allowed himself to be crucified on a cross, to be a substitute, a sacrifice, to pay for the sins of those who would repent and trust in him. That's amazing. Not only that, but there is nothing that we can do in our lifetimes to pay him back for that. We are completely inept or incapable of being able to reimburse Christ for what he has done. I cannot be good enough to pay him back. I cannot be good enough to get to heaven. Prior to my faith in Christ, sin affected everything that I did. It's only because of Christ's righteousness that I can do anything that is deemed by God as righteous. Any righteousness I have is purely and completely because of his grace. That's what Ephesians 1 teaches. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And I love it that our redemption is in perspective with the riches of his grace, and his grace far outweighs our sin. When we talk about our sins being forgiven, what we have said in the past and what I will say again this morning is that every sin that I have committed in the past, every sin that you have committed, if you have repented and trusted in Christ, every sin in the past that you have committed, whether it was premeditated and intentional or whether it was inadvertent and unintentional, all of those sins have been completely covered over by God's grace, you will never be condemned for those sins, ever. But not only that, sin that may be present in your life today, sin that may be present in the life of any believer that is here this morning, has already been forgiven. Perhaps you were angry with someone this morning. You have not yet repented of it. That sin, if you are in Christ, has already been paid for on the cross and you are forgiven. Perhaps you cheated someone or said something ugly about someone. You have not yet repented of that. It has already been forgiven. Perhaps you have been involved in some sexual sin that you alone know about or the person that it's very private matter, it's not something that's public, and they're just, you and the other person are really the only ones that know about this. And even if you have not yet confessed that, repented of that, but you are a believer in Christ Jesus, that sin has been forgiven, and you will never be condemned for it. 
But not only that. Sins in the future. If God so spares your life past this day, sins which you have not even thought about committing, sins which you surely will commit, offenses which surely will be made against a holy God, have already been paid for on the cross and are completely forgiven. Your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. You are free. You're you're free from any condemnation for that sin. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, verse 33 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. To be justified means to be declared righteous. We use justification in a different way. We think of justification. Well, we we declare something righteous. We say, well, I can have this piece of chocolate cake because I didn't have chocolate cake for breakfast. So uh, I've been good, right? My uncle often says that to his wife, to my aunt. I've been good. Anytime dessert is thought of, I've been good. (laughs) It's a justification. It's a statement of justification. She should answer, no one is good, no one is righteous, no, not one, which is what Romans 3 says. But if you are in Christ, he has declared you to be righteous. Therefore, he sees you through the righteousness of Christ, and he sees you as holy. God has taken all of those who are genuine followers of Christ, and based on nothing else besides his grace and his good pleasure, through the sacrifice of Christ, he has declared all those who are Christ's to be righteous. In fact, if you truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then no matter what you do, God sees you as a saint which is why Paul could address the letters to the Corinthians back in chapter 1, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, God called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. And so, called to be saints. In God's eyes, if you are a follower of Christ, he has already called you a saint. And there is nothing that you can do in your lifetime to make him love you more than he already loves you. Because he loves you as he loves his son. And there is nothing that you can do in your lifetime that will cause his love for you to diminish or be taken away from you. He loves you. And by his grace, he has saved you. And you will never be condemned for sin. Paul wrote, this letter to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, who are already set apart 
for God's purposes. They are free then from the penalty of sin. They are also free from the dominion of sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, makes a statement that we should also want to cry out, realizing that we, will, we have been given eternal life, that we are considered righteous, holy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. We have victory over sin. The Christian life is one of victory, not because of anything we have accomplished, but because of what Christ did when he paid for our sins on the cross. You are free. You are free from sin. You are free from the power of sin. You are free from the penalty of sin. Does anyone have any questions about that? Because I think that these statements, though we know them to be true, raise questions, practical questions in our lives. Yes, Diana. Right. So the question is, are there consequences for sin? And how are those consequences related to someone who will never be condemned for sin? Is that the question? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about that. That's a good question. I was hoping you'd ask that question. Anybody else have a question? Here at the outset. Yes, Gabe. Can we please God after you're saved? I suppose uh, the question about pleasing God. All right, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. We know that he was, he was Christ pleased God, right? This is my son with whom I am well pleased, right? The question is, was there any time that Christ was not pleased with, God was not pleased with Christ, and we would say no, right? Well, let's jump into this, and let's talk about sanctification and practical versus positional sanctification, Related to our passage, we're going to get to our passage. We're not going to get far in our passage. This is going to take us uh, at least a couple weeks to get through. But I, I hope to get through at least verse 12 today. So verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Um, when we think about 
the sin and being lawful. Um, we talk about, when we talk about sanctification, okay, sanctification being set apart, being set apart for a specific sur- uh, purpose. Uh, I, I often use the example, I've used it multiple times here, that my Sunday clothes are my Sunday clothes. My wife reminds me that these are my Sunday clothes and that when I go home and get tempted sometime to go in the garage and maybe tinker around in the garage before I change out of my Sunday clothes, she lovingly rebukes me and says, uh, oh, before you go out there, you change out of those clothes. Those are your Sunday clothes. And what she means is those are sanctified clothes. Those are set apart for a specific, specific service, right? And those of us who have been sanctified, we are set apart for a specific service. We are not to be in the filth of this world. We're not to be in the garages, if you will, of this world. We're set apart to do the king's work. And so we are sanctified. And the Bible speaks about sanctification both in the past tense and as an ongoing reality. Because sanctification is something that from God's perspective, he looks down at us through the righteousness of Christ and he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees us as Christ. He sees the film of your life and... The film of your life looks identical to Christ's film because Christ's righteousness is all that he sees because all of your sins, according to Romans chapter 4, have been taken out of your account and placed onto Christ's account on the cross where he paid for them in full. And Christ's righteousness is taken out of his account and imputed into your account so that when God looks at you, he sees you as righteous, as holy. And yet... Uh, when he, uh, though you are holy from a positional perspective, practically we know that we still struggle with sin. And so there is a positional sanctification from above, but there is a progressive sanctification or practical sanctification that we will grow in. And God promises in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will perfect you until the time that you are with Christ. He will continue to make you more like Christ. He will use various means to do that. He does that not as a judge, but as a parent. And so we think of these in terms of judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness. A judge condemns judicially But a parent can discipline, not kicking a person out, not punitively, but for training, lovingly, to help that person. A coach can also discipline you uh, for training purposes. And so the problem is, is that sometimes we come and we say things like, well, my sins are forgiven anyways. So what does it matter if I go ahead and do such and such a thing. Is it really, I mean, it's, I'm forgiven of it. So I'll just do it. There are two lies that we tell ourselves, two lies, really demonic lies. The first one is just this once. I'll just do this once. I'll get away with it. It'll be fine. It'll be worth it. It's a lie. It is never worth it. Sin is never worth it. And you know the second lie. The second lie is, well, you've already done it once. What's it going to hurt if you do it once more? Those are two sins that Paul is trying to correct 
in this passage. Sometimes you may have heard the slogan that Christians have. Sometimes uh, it used to be on bumper stickers, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. And I've heard unbelievers get angry at that because it sounds like we're touting forgiveness as some sort of liberty to sin or license to sin. There's a difference between liberation and license. Uh, To be liberated from sin is to be set free from sin, from its penalty, from the dominating presence of sin in your life. You are no longer controlled by sin, but rather now Christ is your master. But to have a license to sin is really to rationalize your sin or to try and justify your sin by saying, well, I won't have any consequences for this, so I might as well go and do it. Or, yeah, you can't really touch me. You can't rebuke me because you have a misunderstanding of what it means to be lovingly rebuked. A good friend of mine was traveling. Uh, he was a missionary in Malawi, and he was friends with uh, a man I've met before, but uh, just kind of know. But uh, he was good friends with a guy who was uh, the South African diplomat to Malawi. He was the ambassador from South Africa to Malawi. And they went on a trip to Zambia, neighboring country. And on the way back, they come back, and the, the border, if you've ever crossed borders in Africa, it can take hours, sometimes days. Uh, it's just, they're just slow. But they went through, there weren't a whole lot of people there. They got their passports stamped, and then they came out and sat in the car. And at this border post, it's not a major border post, it's a small border post. I've been through it before. Um, the, but the, the guys running the border post were just sitting there talking, drinking coffee. And all they have to do is come out and raise the boom and let you come through it. But they were not doing it. So my friend who's the missionary is with this diplomat, and the diplomat gets out of the car and yells on it, hey, why don't you guys come out here and do your job? And my friend is sinking in his chair because, I mean, this is a white South African shouting at black Zambians to help do their job, that they're not doing what they should be doing, and making them angry and making them want to maybe retaliate against them. And sure enough, they came out, more than one came out, walk around the car, say, okay, We'll do our job. Take everything out of your vehicle. We want to inspect everything in your belongings, and we're going to do our job and make sure that you're, you know, can go through this border pro- you know, properly. And the diplomat pulled out his diplomatic passport, and he opened it to the page that showed he had diplomatic immunity. He says, is this what you wanted to see? And they walked up to the boom, and they raised it, and they said, right this way. Man, wouldn't you love to have that? <laughs> I mean, doesn't that sound fun? But, but that's not what the gospel is about. That's somehow, sometimes how we treat the gospel. We use it as a license to say or do whatever we feel like doing. It's... it's uh, Sometimes Christians act as like they have the right to do whatever they want to do. And that was the case in Corinth. You may recall that it was an especially immoral city. They had a huge temple in Corinth that was dedicated to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And that temple housed a 1,000 temple prostitutes. 
And those prostitutes would come down into the city at night. And so immoral were the Corinthians that if you wanted to slander somebody in that part of the ancient world outside of Corinth, because they were an immoral person, you would call them a Corinthian, you Corinthian. And the word to Corinthianize actually meant to be with a prostitute. It was a euphemism that was used casually to talk about relations with a prostitute. And so this was common in Corinth, and Paul had written the church in Corinth, and there were some Christians who were carrying over all kinds of past sins into their present relationship with Christ. Uh, We just saw last week about people who were suing one another because it was so common to be involved in the court system and being suing one another in secular society. They had just kept that practice in the church. And now he rebukes them because it had been so common to be involved in sexual immorality in Corinth that people were carrying on with that kind of practice in the church. And this is what he's getting at. We know that there were serious issues because if you skip back to verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, he reminds them, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. And so it's evident from this passage as we look at it that some of the Corinthians were justifying those past lifestyles and carrying on with them. And he says, such were some of you. You, You're free from that now. You should no longer live like that now. That no longer is the life-dominating characteristic. Christ is the one who dominates your life now. Christ is whom you should be known by. And verse 12 opens with a, very likely a slogan of the Corinthian church, something they heard often, everything is lawful. All things are lawful, or everything is permissible, they might say. Um, it was a misapplication of something that in one sense was true. And so in our passage in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20 of 1 Corinthians, Paul really builds an argument here based off of four misunderstandings that the Corinthians had that should help us to have a right view of Christian liberty. Another way of saying that is four misunderstandings that when understood, it will help us to flee from immorality. Four misunderstandings, and the first one we're going to look at this morning, and that is they misunderstood freedom. They misunderstood what freedom was in verse 12, which says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. When he says it's not profitable or helpful or beneficial, he's talking about sin. He's saying that sin is never worthwhile. Sin is never beneficial. It is never profitable. It is never an advantage for you. In fact, just the opposite is true. Sin is harmful. It's funny that we have to remind ourselves of that, but because of the lies that we often believe, sin is never worth it. That's why when you talk to a true believer that is entertained or amused 
or concealed sin, they are miserable. And the more they entertain that sin, the more miserable they are. Think of King David back in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So it was sin for him to even look at the woman who was bathing. In those days, people would bathe sometimes on their roofs because nobody else could see you because the houses were all about the same height, and you could look up, and there would be some barriers, and you couldn't see uh, on people's roofs. Even if you're at the same level, sometimes there would be barriers you couldn't see. But if you're up higher, like in the palace where David was, he could see it, and it was sin for him. And we know that it was sin for him because he didn't just glance at it and turn away because verse 2 says, the woman was very beautiful. How did he know she was beautiful? Because he was sinning. He was looking at her long enough to notice very small details about her. 2 Samuel eleven three. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It was sin for David to send someone to find out about her. Because he was married. He had no business even entertaining the idea of getting to know her better. But you see how sin starts. It starts with, uh, well, I wasn't really planning to look out and see a woman bathing, but since I saw her, I enjoyed it. And rather than repenting of that and turning from that, well, what's the harm in just finding out who it is? She's very beautiful. It's not like I'm really going to do anything. And then 2 Samuel 4, 2 Samuel 11, 4, David sent a message to her. It was sin to arrange to meet her. Um, it was sin because he was married. And it was sin because now he knew that she was married. And she was married to one of his soldiers who was off fighting for his nation on his behalf. And then in 2 Samuel 11, verse 4, at the end, it says, she came to him and he slept with her. There are really different stages of sin. This, we see it here. It's, he considered it. He conceived the idea. He committed the sin. When we're talking about adultery, you've got consideration, conceiving the idea, and then committing the sin. And the fourth stage is concealing it. That's what follows it, right? That's naturally what's there is hiding it, concealing it. Because later he found out that she was pregnant, so he tried to cover it over by sending for Uriah to come home from battle. Uriah was such a faithful man that he would not spend time with his wife when he knew that his fellow soldiers couldn't spend time with their wives. And so David sent Uriah back to the battle with this note that was given to Joab, the commander, 2 Samuel 11, verse 15. In the note, he wrote, quote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Pretty clear, pretty intentional. And the more he entertained that sin, the deeper he got into sin and eventually 
It added up to more misery. He was hiding it and putting on a pretty good show, didn't even recognize it when he was first confronted because Samuel the prophet came to him and told him a story about someone who had many sheep and someone who had one little ewe lamb and, and uh, the one liked the little ewe lamb and took it for himself and slaughtered it and ate it and, and then, and then uh, and David said, well, that person should be punished and then the, the prophet says, thou art the one, right, Nathan the prophet, thou art the one. And it was after that that we have Psalm 51. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Begins with a superscription. Tells us the setting of the psalm. It says in Psalm 51, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. I said Samuel before, but it's Nathan. He cries out in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to your greatness and your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You hear the anguish here? Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Saul, his predecessor, God had removed his spirit from him, something that doesn't happen to believers today. So when we sing this song or when we read this psalm, we don't need to say, don't take your Holy Spirit from me because God has given his spirit to us and we have that spirit forever. But the spirit was used in those times as a special anointing on a king or a person for God's service, and that anointing had been removed from his predecessor for sin. And David realized very, he was very aware of the fact that he could also be disciplined in that way. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. David is in agony because of the sin that he had concealed. And God had forgiven David judicially in spite of his sin by the word of his grace through the promise of a Messiah, through Christ's work on the cross eventually. But the misery that he experienced for his sin was one of the consequences of that sin. He was miserable 
The consequences included the loss of a child. And what we see consistently in Scripture is that sin is never worth it. And just because you don't feel the, the consequence immediately doesn't mean that the consequence isn't there or isn't coming. Sin always has consequences. Sin is never worth it. Why is that? Because God's forgiveness as judge is different than the way he forgives as a father, parentally, as a parent. Forgiveness is this actively not remembering. That's how we define forgiveness, right? And we have the judicial forgiveness. We've understood that. We've talked about that. And that's freeing, and that's something we rejoice in. Ephesians 1, 7, we read earlier, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Romans 8, 1, we also mentioned, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 5, verse 24, is judicial in its forgiveness. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Praise God. But other passages that speak about forgiveness are parental. And they stand out as parental because they often use the word father, and it's emphasized in the verse. Matthew 6, verse 15 is one example. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive you your transgressions. The same teaching is taught in Matthew 18, verses 32 through 35, the parental forgiveness. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11. I'm not sure if that's what you were thinking of earlier, but this passage about discipline, fatherly discipline. Listen to these words. You can turn there if you want. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seen best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So it's a serious misunderstanding of freedom to think that because you're free from the law judicially, that your father will not discipline you parentally. In addition to that, sin... And in this passage, it specifically highlights sexual sin has a way of enslaving you. 
we see the control of it expressed in the second part of 1 Corinthians 6.12, where it says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. It's actually an interesting play on words here, because when he says in verse 12, all things are lawful, the word there could be all things are authoritative. And then uh, again, in the second part of verse 12, all things are authoritative, second time he says that, but I will not be and then we don't really have a good word for it, but authoritatively mastered. It's the same word there, a different form of it. I will not be authoritied by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. There is, that's a beautiful truth, by the way. That means that tells us that there is no habitual sin that a believer can be partaking in that cannot be overcome. We will struggle against sin until we are with him, but there is you can be free from any habitual sin, any enslaving sin, any sin that feels like it's a life-dominating sin. You can be free from it. This is what the Scripture teaches. It teaches it in 1 Corinthians chapter, 12, chapter 6, verse 12. It also teaches it in Romans 6, verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. It's one of the beautiful things, and I think it's an important truth to understand if you're battling with habitual sin. Because if you're believing the lie is, I'll never be able to conquer this, you don't understand the grace that has been given to you because the grace has been given to you is powerful enough that though we will struggle against sin, our lives... Sin shall not have dominion over us. Prior to faith in Christ, all we did is sin. Even the things that we thought that were good were, uh, were sinful. They were tainted with sin. I always think about um, Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Notice it doesn't say that we know that the bad things that we do work together for good. That's usually how we read the verse. Even the good things that you did worked together for good. We didn't do good things before we were with Christ. You may have come to church before you came to faith in Christ, but if you came to church not because you wanted to submit to Christ and worship him, but because you had another motive, perhaps to be seen, to perhaps please a parent, whatever it was, that in self, though a good thing, had a wrong motive, and so it was tainted with sin. It was not pure and holy obedience before our Lord. But we are free. We are no longer slaves to sin. If you are a drug addict and you commit yourself to the Lordship of Christ, drugs no longer have dominion over you. They no longer have control over you. If you're an alcoholic, you've never been able to break yourself away from alcohol for more than a week, a month, a year. You can no longer be controlled. You no longer have to be controlled by alcohol, you can be controlled by the Spirit of God, or as Ephesians 5.18 says, be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that filling is different than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's different than the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. That filling is obedience, doing what the Spirit of God would have you to do. 
But like the children of Israel who were set free from their slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, they later longed for those days they were back in Egypt. And we Christians have a misconception about freedom. We think that we're free from it, and when you're initially saved, you're motivated to live a life righteously, glorifying Christ, and then you start to believe this lie going back, well, everything's permissible, and remember that old sin. Boy, there's something really appealing about that. But we should make a mental note right now, sin, even the smallest sin, enslaves, and it's not worth it. It's not profitable, and it enslaves. The more it's entertained, the more you consider it, the more you conceive of how you can participate in it, then you commit it, you're going to conceal it. It's true of all sin. I read a story some time ago about a man in a newspaper article, and it struck me. I couldn't stop thinking about it. He was a British fisherman named Clive White. He was quoted in this article by saying, it destroyed me. It destroyed my marriage. It destroyed everything I wanted. I felt so guilty. You say, well, what did he do? Did he rob a bank? No. Did he commit adultery? The article didn't say that. Did he murder someone? No. Why was his life ruined? According to the article, he lied about a fish, which is, if you're a fisherman, I mean, that's a pretty common thing, right? <laughs> but he had an unusual situation. He was fishing, and he saw a dead fish floating. It was a rainbow trout. This is in Britain. And he, it was a big rainbow trout. And so he scooped it up in his net and brought it in his boat, And he decided to tell a lie, and he held it up to his friends. Look what I caught. Look what I caught. And they, wow. And they bring it in. Turned out it was a record rainbow trout in Britain. And now he's in the newspapers, and everybody are there. And he's stuck holding this fish with this lie. Put in the record books, recorded by the... British Record Fish Committee. I didn't know such a thing existed. Did you, did you Paul? Did you? Yes, okay. He knows all about it. Uh, this is the quote. Listen to this quote. It destroyed me, my marriage, and everything I ever wanted. I felt so guilty. Not a week went by without me thinking of it. Eight years later, he confessed. He lied about catching in his a fish, but he was caught in his lie. He considered it, he conceived, he conceived it, he committed it, he concealed it, and it ate away at him. But there is an, there is an escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except this is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Earlier, we asked about pleasing God. We had a question about sin and consequences for sin. Judicially, there's nothing you can do to please God. Judicially, you will never be condemned for your sin. 
But as a parent, as a loving parent, you can do what's pleasing to God, and you can be obedient to him. And somebody asked me not so long ago, why can't I just pray to God and let him set me free instantly? Why is this such a struggle? A passage that has come to mind regarding that is Psalm 15, verse 22, which says, to obey, sorry, it's not Psalm, it's 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, to obey is better than to sacrifice. This was regarding Saul's sin. To obey is better than sacrifice. What God wants is he wants a relationship with you. And if he just instantly said, okay, go sacrifice this, boom, now you won't struggle with that anymore, we wouldn't have a relationship with him. We'd find another sin to go have a relationship with. He desires a father-child relationship with you where he will shepherd you. And so you may be struggling with sin, but you must flee from that sin. You must turn from that sin, and you must pursue righteousness. And one of the keys to doing that is understanding what true freedom is. There are three other keys that we'll be looking at, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to study a difficult and challenging passage. Help us, Lord, to, Lord, we desire to please you. We know that there's nothing that we can do from a positional perspective to make you happier with us, and we rejoice in that, but don't let that be a misunderstanding in our own minds, an excuse to sin. Father, we desire to please you. We desire to be holy. We desire to pursue righteousness. We realize that we can be enslaved to sin, and we desire to be free from the practice of any sin, any habitual sin, that we may continue to grow in our sanctification. So help us to understand these truths that we may be able to apply them to our lives and that your name will be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.